Jubilee Church Derby, a church family looking to make a difference across the city of Derby and beyond. This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Okay, well, good morning, Jubilee. As uh, thanks very much to Adam, I think I uh, never had a kinder introduction, although I was a little bit nervous when he said wired up. I thought I was going to get strung up or something like that. But no, it's fine. Um, Graham, who isn't with us this morning, who leads the church, gave me uh, the choice of psalm to preach on, and I felt really led to Psalm 46. So uh, we'll read it, and then I'll pray, and I really trust that it will bless and encourage you. So if you want to turn in your Bibles or swipe in your smartphones or... I'm trying to think of something that rhymes with T for tablets, but it doesn't spring to mind right now. Tap your tablets. Thank you, my darling. That's my one. Yeah. So, we'll be uh, just looking at the first five verses of Psalm 46 this morning. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Father, we just ask that your word would come alive to us this morning, that your spirit would lead us and teach us. And that we would enjoy and uh, come into a deeper relationship with you this morning. Amen. So, if you're a note-taking person, this first part is going to be called our refuge. So verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. So let me ask you the question. What do we do when we're in trouble? What do you do? When you have a problem. Let's consider if we got into distress while we were swimming. Okay? It seems fitting as the psalm talks about a river. You know, you're putting the lengths in a front crawl and suddenly, ugh, cramp strikes. Can I need a bit of participation here? Can, you, can, I, can I ask you to raise your hand if you've ever had cramp? Okay, lots of us. Ever had cramp while swimming? Still a lot of us. Ugh, so you'll know that agonising pain kicks in, grips you. But in this scenario, you're at the deep end. You're not close enough to reach the side. Your one arm flailing isn't proving sufficient to keep afloat because your other hand's trying to massage, compel the muscle to relax. And so, what do you do? Who do we seek help from? Well, it'd be the lifeguard, wouldn't it? They're the best qualified to help us. They're strong swimmers. They've definitely done their swimming badges. Certainly a first aid course, and so on. I've got no idea whether the Baywatch theme tune comes blaring out the speakers at the moment of rescue, but we can, let's hope so, let's imagine that. So we turn to the expert. We turn to the best in the field. And this is true in any scenario. You know, if your car breaks down, you turn to a mechanic. If a pipe bursts, we ring a plumber. If you feel unwell, we go to a doctor. In life, in our lives, 
God is our expert. And he's not just a refuge. He's not just one of many. He is our refuge. He is for us and we are to turn to him. When we're in trouble, we react instinctively. My father told me a story many years ago, and it's always stuck with me, and I rang him up recently to get some more details. He told me about a time when he was swimming off the coast of Rio de Janeiro. Now, in case any of you are wondering, he wasn't getting in some seriously ahead-of-his-time prep for this summer's Olympics. Okay, He, was, he happened to be there, some, some business uh, that took him over there. And uh, he was off the coast of Ipanema Beach, so he tells me. Uh, he had, and this detail is important because it explains something, he was quite a strong swimmer, but that day he had a bit of an upset stomach, uh, which, apart from all of the other consequences it brings, left him a bit weakened. He found, almost without realising, that he was being pulled out by the undertow. He thought about shouting, but he realised the people on the beach couldn't hear him, not even swimmers who were fairly close by, they wouldn't even be able to hear him. And he started to panic it started to rise up and he didn't know what to do and my father told me and he wasn't a believer at that time and he, he told me I, I just I kind of made an appeal I, I I sent out a prayer for help there was this strong sense of appealing and he realized it had been answered not in the form of a, a helicopter swooping down or a surfer sort of going by and swooping him up. But he suddenly felt a great sense of calm. And he realised that in all his struggling against the waves and the tow, that it's his legs which were being swept away. So he, he just felt a peace of mind to lie flat on the water, rest in it. And as he found out later, years later, when he did some research, with these undertows, these, these currents off, off, uh, off the coast, they do pull you away from the shore, but eventually they take you back in. And that happened. And my father, he'd made this appeal, and he found that this calm set in, and he had the peace and presence of mind to think clearly, to relax, to conserve his strength. I can all imagine what would have happened if he'd panicked, worn himself out. Nobody there to help him, but he didn't. In that moment, something within us cries out, God, help me, God, help us. But it's not just when it's our own lives at risk, is it? I know that many of you may think of myself and Isabel as relative spring chickens, um, <laughs> but we've had to go through some stuff. Uh, life has thrown some things our way. And uh, even whilst we were, before we were married, during the course of our courtship, we had some difficult times. Isabel's father passed away, and my mother suffered a brain hemorrhage. Throughout these intense times, it's been our experience that God has sustained and helped us in a myriad of ways. Not least with supportive family, being granted time off whilst I was training to teach to, to go down there to see the family with excellent medical care, and subsequently, praise God, full healing, with no side effects for my mother. And we've also found, in the midst of it, just as my father uh, talked about, this sense of calm, this sense of peace, that even amongst all that was going on, we knew that God was with us. I just want to mention, you know, perhaps you're here this morning, and you've never called out to God before, maybe it's you or one of your kin 
who are in trouble. And you feel like there's nowhere else to turn. I just want to, I just want to tell you it's, it's my personal experience. It's here in, in God's word that there is one and he's an expert at saving lives. You can meet him today and he will rescue you if you ask him to. Okay, so, but what about those times that are less immediately life-threatening threatening, or, or they don't seem to require such immediate resolution? They might be just as acute in terms of the trouble they cause us. Um, and so we might think of maybe grievances or people who've wronged us or situations that we fundamentally disagree with. What do we do then? Well, we need to look elsewhere in the Psalms. In Psalm 64, it says, hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. And in Psalm 142, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. God is able and willing to hear our complaints, to be a refuge in every sense of the word, providing a shelter and safety for our emotions. Another word for refuge is a safe harbour. And uh, just as boats and ships can be kept in a harbour, we can keep a thought or a feeling, typically a negative one, in our minds and in our hearts, and especially secretly. And hence, we get that expression, harbouring doubts. We bottle it up. But rather than doing that, rather than keep it within, God actively encourages us, encourages us through the examples of the psalmist to release it from our internal harbours and bring it into his heavenly harbour. I'm sure you can envisage situations that we might instinctively want to keep to ourselves. Maybe it's losing a job, the end of a relationship and more besides. To sum that up, God, God wants us to turn to him in every circumstance. Whether it's the big ones, when our lives feel threatened, or if it's the things that seem a bit smaller. These words from Philippians are familiar to us. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You see, the psalmist's approach, I pour out my complaint before him, before God. Don't just precede that exhortation that we heard in Philippians. It also confirms that we're to look up before we look sideways. What I mean is that we are to go to God first before seeking help from people. Just as he should be in the first in our heart when uh, praise erupts, when thanksgiving overflows... So he must be our first port of call when we're in trouble. Now, please hear me on this. I am not saying for one minute that uh, don't seek help, that it's just got to be you and God only. That's not what I'm saying. That would be unhealthy and it would bypass the one anothering, the support and love that the body of Christ affords. Sometimes we can struggle to respond in faith. And we need people to help lift our gaze. We need people to help bear our burdens and offer comfort and counsel. What I am saying is that it can't be all we do. Otherwise, 
will develop a second-hand relationship with God. Think of this. A father has two children. And for the sake of anonymity, we'll use child A and child B. Okay? I desperately wanted to use somebody from church, but I didn't want anyone to be offended. So, <laughs> Maybe another time. So, if A has a problem, what is he going to do? Child A is going to go to his father, tell him about it, and expect that in some way the father's going to support and help. Now, how about B? How unusual would it be for child B, rather than talking directly to their father, if B turns to A and asks A to talk to father about it? It may still prove effective, as the father will still be able to help, because he'll know about it through B's request, but the father will wonder, sorry, A's request, but the father will wonder why B didn't come to him himself. And also, B has missed out on a deepening of his relationship with his father and experiencing his unconditional love firsthand. You see, for us, and I hope the analogy, although I got my B's and A's a bit mixed up, I hope the analogy is clear. The only mediator, the only go-between that we truly need, we already have. It's Jesus. But I've got to ask the question, how many of us do that, folks? I know I do. I know I have done. And in reading this passage, it's, it's made me resolve to, to, to do it less. How many of us look sideways to trusted friends, you know, to those wise heads, even to social media? And then, almost as an afterthought, we look upwards and bring the matter to God. So I just want to leave you with a question. It's a question I'm asking myself. Whatever the situation, is God your first port of call or is he your last resort? Verse 2. Getting there, aren't we? Therefore, we will not fear. You see, if we do this, if we open up to God first, then to the people we truly need to, we might have that internal uh, assurance that we sang about that, that deep assurance that will uh, take, take over us. A personal confidence in God's character and capacity, in our Father's character and capacity to help us. We might be able to join with the psalmist when he says, We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. I've got to say, I'd be afraid right now if the cinema began to fall apart. If the quad was shaken to its very foundations. If the Derwent rose up roiling. I, I, think, I think I'd be afraid. Perhaps I wouldn't be the only one. Maybe I would. <laughs> so I've got to consider, have I, been do, have I been making a habit of this? Do I seek God first as my refuge? Is he my go-to? Because if I want to join with the psalmist, if I want to say not in bravado or bluster, but with a deep-seated confidence, I will not fear and I will trust that God will help. If I want to do that, if we want to do that, we must build up a history with God. We must go to him first and entrust him with everything. Okay, second part we're going to look at is a river. 
If you're taking notes, it's a river. Verse 4. I love this. I love this verse. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, rivers are powerful forces of nature and they're really evocative metaphors. They feature in songs, poems, films, literature, often conveying that power on a really dramatic scale. But what's so special about this river? Why do its streams cause gladness? So to understand it better, we see in Psalm 65, in praise of God's plentiful provision, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. And again, in a familiar context in Psalm 36, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your del- uh, of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights so this river that god provides is both a real watercourse and the source of our spiritual joy and delight it's a metaphor for his holy spirit not only that but we as his children can partake and drink we can enjoy our relationship with god not only can refuge be sought, we can actually enjoy seeking refuge. It's part of the wonder of knowing him, that seeking shelter in God is not just a practical uh, place of protection, but also a pleasurable, enjoyable experience. You know, we've experienced something of that this morning. Perhaps it was more the streams of God just gently bringing that gladness, but I'm convinced there's more to come for us in the days ahead. And to to help prepare ourselves for that, I'd like to just to delve into the link between the river and the city. In Isaiah chapter 33, Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. We hear echoes of the city in Psalm 46. She shall not be moved. You know, I have to, the first time I read that, I asked myself, why? Like, how is it that a tent cannot be budged? I can understand a city in Psalm 46 not being moved, but a tent. Those of you who've camped, maybe just back from camping, just about to go camping, you'll have known, at the very least, sides buffeted by wind and rain lashing down. And some may even have had the misfortune of poorly pegged down tents turning into uh, expensive kites. Aside from the fact that practically tents in the Old Testament were made of a very coarse fabric um, and goat's hair, the reason the dwelling place of the people of God, because that's what uh, uh, Isaiah is referring to, this tent is the dwelling place of the people of God, is immovable, is due to the defence that the river and the streams of God will provide, as it mentions in the final line. Matthew Henry's commentary is helpful to understand the significance of these verses, although I have paraphrased it slightly in parts. Jerusalem had no major river running by it, 
as most cities have, nothing but the Kidron Brook. And as I found out preparing this, a brook is a small stream. And so lacked one of the best natural fortifications, as well as one of the greatest advantages for trade and commerce. And so their enemies looked down on them and believed the city would be an easy target. But the presence and power of God are sufficient at any time to make up for any apparent weaknesses. But if there were such broad rivers and streams about Jerusalem, may not these allow easy access for the fleet of an invader? No, these are rivers and streams in which shall go no pirate ship or warship. If God himself be the river, it will be inaccessible to the enemy. They can neither find nor force their way by it. So, when we're thinking about the river of God, there's two D's to bear in mind. The river of God is a river of delight and defence. As the commentary says, most cities are situated by rivers. Cities sprang up from towns, from villages, as they were sources of water, the rivers, for cultivating the land, you know, for growing the crops, to bring commerce from afar as trade routes. But what we need, as the city gets bigger, is the river in the city. We're going to continue to look at Jerusalem because it's historical example can serve as a metaphor for the people of God nowadays. Hezekiah, one of the kings of Judah, knew that Jerusalem was facing possible invasion and certain siege uh, by the Assyrians, another people group. And so he tunneled to bring fresh water into the city. Cue David, please. Okay, just the first one. Thank you. He undertook a strategic engineering project that would be an impressive feat in any age, tunnelling through 1,750 metres of solid rock. That's, yeah, just over 530 metres. Under Jerusalem, to bring water from the Gihon Spring, which was outside of the city, to a pool on the opposite side of the ridge. So it's a serious labour of work. And then he also constructed a pool to hold the water, not just yet, sorry, not just yet, thanks, um, known as the Shella Pool. Forgive my pronunciation if you are a, a scholar, uh, doing the best I can. A, a, the Shella Pool, I think it's how it's said. It's referred to in Nehemiah when he rebuilds the wall of the Pool of Shella of the King's Garden. Now, we can picture all sorts of things from the word pool. I guess I thought of, as it's in a garden, a small you know, pond-like body of water. But this is the king's garden and it's on an altogether different scale. Thank you, David. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia states there was a great rock cut pool, 71 foot north and south and by 75 foot east and west, approached by a splendid flight of stairs along its west side. I guess that's over there. The pool was surrounded by an arcade, and again, I thought to myself, it can't be about video games. Um, (laughs) Genuinely, I've I've had to make sure. uh, The arcade is a covered passage with arches, and this arcade was 12 foot wide and 22 and a half foot high. The historian Josephus uh, says that this fountain was a plentiful spring of sweet water. David, could you just tap on one more? There's another sort of artist's impression of what it'd be like 
Over time, the name changed, and it's likely that this is the pool that Jesus directs the blind man to in John, when he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. We know and we read that Jesus healed people in all manner of different ways. On a practical level, it made sense, because he just applied a paste of saliva and and dust and and, uh, earth from the ground and rubbed it on this man's eyes. So it made sense for him to wash it off. But I wonder if the choice of that pool is significant too, as a representation of where and who to turn to. Jesus sends him to a pool carved out by godly men whose tunnelling brought water into the city. Water that brings life. Water that is essential for every aspect of their lives. Family, work, social. Every aspect. Nearly ten years ago, uh, I was leading a life group. It started with a blaze of enthusiasm and zeal. And a year and a half or so later, the church leader, a church leader, sorry, asked me how I felt it was going. Being honest, I said, I feel like it's, it's rather stagnant. So we sat and discussed various different ways that we can freshen it up. You know, bringing some new people in, some new initiatives we could try, some activities we could do together. But had I been more self-aware at the time, and what I eventually realised later on with a marvellous gift that hindsight is, was that what was stagnant was not the group, but it was my own heart. I was still busy in church life, but my times of soaking in God's presence were seldom, and I wasn't holding fast to the word of life as Philippians encourages us. Our hearts are intended to be Great pools, brimming to overflow with the love of God and his life-giving water, his life-giving spirit. This is a description of the pool of Shelah, or the pool of Siloam nowadays. The water from the Siloam aqueduct, emerging at Ain Silwan, flows today into a narrow, shallow pool, which is but a poor survivor of the fine pool which was once here. The water here is brackish, and impregnated with sewage. So how, I wonder, did it become this way? How could such a grand pool fall into ruin? I see the parallel in my own life. How did my heart, which started off full of enthusiasm and zeal and and joy for the Lord, get so stagnant? I think it's fair to say it can happen over time. That gradually the sediment of life settles. Now we talk about the pressures of life building up and things getting on top of us. We know that we're Christians and that there's no, been no dramatic reversal or repurposing of our lives. If someone were to tell us that we'd become shallow and harbouring you know, waste and filth, this disappointment, that unforgiveness or hurt or bitterness some of the worries of life which can come in if someone were to tell us that we'd probably be alarmed and and maybe even outraged but it can happen it can come to pass here at Jubilee we love the presence of God we love times as his spirit flows among us washing away the weariness of the weak and cleansing us of our worries and fears yet we cannot live here in the river 
We live in the city. But what we can do while in the city is dig out the pool of our hearts. We can create a reservoir for God's spirit to reside in. We can stay vigilant, dredging the depths to keep them clear. No, we can keep short account with God. We can spend time with him. We can come to him as well as bringing our complaints to him, just listening with no agenda, being with our father. We can even ask for him to deepen the pool of our own hearts. It doesn't have to stay. The depth of our relationship doesn't have to stay as it is or what we've known or even what we've experienced in the past. He can take us deeper. We do all this, and I want to encourage us to do this this morning and in the days to come, to let the water flow freely into our hearts. This is our response to the river whose streams make glad the city of God. We can receive the river and make way for its streams in our hearts and in our lives. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough to know gladness in our hearts and in our daily walk, if that wasn't enough to know his life-giving spirit in us, for ourselves, brothers and sisters, we've got to. And not just for our own sake. You see, the pool of Shilam was there for the whole city, not just for the man that Jesus healed. Hear Revelation's account of the river of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Our future and purpose in tending to our hearts, in allowing the river to flow through the centre of our lives and of this people, of us as a people of God, is not simply for our own sake, but that other cities, other areas, other countries would be blessed. God's river is our delight and our defence bringing gladness to us individually and collectively. I've got to ask the question, have you, like I experienced, become stagnant? There is no judgment here. Today, I want to encourage you, be refreshed. Allow God to bless you and bless the world around you. Because there's a greater purpose beyond our own sanctification. And that thrills me. Listen again to Jesus' invitation. And we're going to have the band come up, if that's all right, Adam and Elliot. And make room for him in your hearts. Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Thank you.